You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Writing Black. I am your host, Maisha Kai, lifestyle editor here at the Griot. And today we have um, a legendary guest. I don't really know how else to describe it. You know, you are likely, if you were an NBA, you know, follower or fan like myself, you have likely gotten accustomed to seeing him on the court. He is widely regarded as, I don't know, the greatest point guard of all time. That's right. We have Chris Paul with us today to talk about his new book called 61, Life Lessons from Papa on and off the court. Chris Paul, we are so excited to have you with us today on Writing Black. This is like a rare treat. Welcome. How are you? I'm well, Maisha. Thank you so much for having me, too. I mean, I'm tickled. Listen, I, you know, I am, I'm not a basketball, I'm not a baller myself, but I <sighs> grew up in a family where, you know, I spent many years, uh, you know, weekends on bleachers watching my dad run up and down a court on weekend leagues. And now that torch has been passed to my <laughs> niece and nephew. What? But, you know, this is a book that really resonated with me. You know, my dad is now a papa himself. And, um, you know, there's so much to love here, but this is a book um, that's very much rooted in your relationship with your grandfather, um, who, by all accounts, sounds like an amazing man. Um, tell me a little bit about him and how he inspired this telling of this memoir for you. Thanks for having me on Writing Black, first and foremost, because what I want to do is, first and foremost, is let all those writers know that I have a uh, an appreciation for them and what they do, right? And especially something for for this, like me, that was so personal. Um, it was an experience that I'll never forget. And so talking about my grandfather, he was just, he was one of a kind. There's no relationship like it. I lost my grandmother, his wife, when I was seven years old to lung cancer. And um, I just never wanted my granddad to feel lonely. And for those that haven't been fortunate enough to have that relationship sort of with a grandparent, it's totally different from the relationship with your parents. Yeah. At least that was my situation. Yeah. My parents, I didn't think they liked me a lot of times. You know, everything was no. Everything was no. And so my grandfather is where I went to, you know, sort of, you know, feel that, that different type of love at times. You know, and it that love comes through in this book and you know, as somebody who had that type of relationship with a grandparent, like I teared up actually as you were just talking now. And I did while reading 61, um, which has such a poignant title even, you know, I mean, fans are used to you being number three, um, but uh, 61 is very significant. Um, this is the age at which your uh, grandfather suddenly died. And it also signifies the uh, tribute that you paid to him um, in the days after his death, um, when you were still in high school. I was six points away from MJ's state record of 67 with 90 seconds to go. That number was in reach and would mean my name passed the greatest to ever do it and would be in the state's record books for who knows how long. This was all going through my mind as I walked to the free throw line. I closed my eyes and I took a breath to center myself the ref bounced me the ball. So many of my family members and friends, especially people who were connected to Papa, filled the stands. Emotions flooded my body. All my thoughts were about Papa, the lessons he taught me, the time I spent at the gas station, 
when he found out I was going to Wake Forest, the way he passed me the hat, when I learned about what happened to him, the trauma, the pain, the confusion, my family, and how I would never see him again. I took a deep breath, the deepest breath I'd ever taken. I took one dribble. Papa was my best friend, is my best friend, and forever will be. Without getting into my free throw motion, I picked up the ball and threw it directly out of bounds. I walked off the court. I saw my dad and immediately collapsed into his arms crying, crying from exhaustion, crying from relief, crying for Papa. 61. R.I.P. Papa Chili. Love you for life. I mean, it's such a tremendous story. And, and the way that you carried him through, um, through your life, through your career, and really, um, I think, pay tribute to your legacy. Like, it's such, it's such a love story, I think, and it's different than um, any kind of love story I've read before. So I commend you on that. I also think, you know, when we talk about uh, memoirs, sports memoirs, or just, you know, memoirs from anybody famous, right? Um, it's always fun, and if not fun, it's always interesting <laughs> to see a different approach to things and to watch you kind of tell these two stories in tandem was really striking to me as a writer. And I'm curious to know, I know you wrote this um, with the help of uh, author Michael Wilbon. How was the process for you? You know, um, obviously there's a lot of, I use this word a lot on the, on the podcast, excavation taking place here, uh, a lot of revisiting trauma, a lot of... Um, it recollection how how was that process yeah so to tell you what my process was like so i started during the pandemic mm. right and um i know how to do a lot of things but there's a lot of things that i don't know how to do and so i reached out to mike just i wanted to sort of get a framework a blueprint mm -hmm. and he was so great in helping and so we started out with zooms during the pandemic where i would just talk to him me and my brother would talk to him for hour or two or just about our childhood and what it looked like uh but there's a whole process it's a whole process to actually formulate the story mm -hmm. how are you going to write it the chapters is it going to be this that and the third and so i tell you throughout the entire process what happened was i got sort of the first um this is being completely honest i got like one of the first um edits back of the book and i read it and it didn't sound like me Mm. That's it real. didn't sound like and it and it and it crushed me and I was like all right I'm starting off. I started back over at page one and went through everything to make sure because it's such a personal story mm -hmm. that it has to sound like me because there's so many uh people that I'm discussing and talking about or whatnot because this is sort of a, a time capsule book for me about one particular time in my life um but I, I appreciated the the whole journey of it. And like you said, I discovered things that I had no clue about in yeah. this process. Mm. Yep. When you say you discovered things you had no clue about, do you mean in terms of the process of how a book comes together or things about, I guess, your own family and your and yourself and your family history or, or some they, mix of both? No, a little bit of both. Okay. But I was saying about my family and about myself. Okay. okay. Right? So... Um, it's crazy. It's been 20 years since uh, my grandfather was murdered and I lost him. But when you go through situations, a lot of times you only think about it from your perspective. 
So I can recollect everything that happened with me to from when I found out to where I went, all this stuff. But in this process of the book, I remember getting on the phone with my mom, my brother, my dad and everything, then a conversation we had never had. I was like, Mom, where was you when you found out? Dad, where was you? You know, CJ, I know you called me and told me that you was coming home, but I didn't realize one of his teammates brought him home, you know? And so I also did the audio book. So I did the audio version, which was even, was much harder. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because if I was sitting there tearing up during this book, I can only imagine what it was like writing it. And, you know, one of the things that I think is so striking about this, and, and even what you were just saying there, you know, talking about this being a time capsule, and you're also taking us through, you know, you're revisiting not only this piece of your personal history, but literally physical locations. And you're, and as you noted, um, you know, when this happened, when this pivotal life event happened to your entire family, um, you were still a teenager. And now you're kind of revisiting this, obviously, as a man, as, as a well-established man, having had this trip still in the midst of a tremendous career. Um, and what I love about um, how you all managed to bring this story kind of full circle is exactly that, because so much of what you're talking about here in this book is about what it means to be a man, a father, a leader. Talking about the patriarch of your family, like what were some of the things that you really wanted to communicate about? You know, there's so many lessons here, so many. Um, But what he taught you about manhood and about um, fatherhood. Yeah, I think what I wanted to convey in the book is um, the importance of relationships, the importance of doing the work, and the importance of showing the work, right? People can tell you this, or what kind of advice did they tell you or this? My grandfather wasn't that big of a talker. He was a doer. So the things that he didn't necessarily tell me, he showed me. He showed me. So if, if me and my brother wanted something, if I wanted these shoes that were coming out, instead of him just giving it to me, he made me come to the service station and do the work. And so I appreciate that. And the things that I learned too is that, especially even from my dad, like my dad used to always tell me, I'm not your friend. That's not my job to be your friend. I got to teach you this. I got to teach you hard work. But I was hugged a lot as a kid too. So yes, they're hard on you, but they, they show you that amount of love. And then also too, it it, it teaches you like the book, it teaches you about loss, right? Like so, when you, when you lose someone, you may lose them in the physical, but you don't necessarily lose them spiritually or emotionally. And you deal with it. You're never like you're never done dealing with it. I think that's what I've learned over all these years is that it may hit me just one day for five minutes where I just sit there and I'm like, dang, I miss Papa. Yeah, you know, and that's normal. Yeah, no, I think it's entirely normal. I think that's what makes this book really special. We are going to be right back with more Chris Paul and more Writing Black. And we're back with Writing Black and our guest today, NBA superstar Chris Paul, who's got a new book, 61. Let's get back into it. I'm sure of all the memoirs that fans might have expected you to write, this might not have been what they were expecting. Even those who know that this is a big part of your story, um, you know, for instance, I have a fan here in my house. <laughs> my fiance is a huge fan. He sends his regards, by the way. <laughs> and one of the things he pointed out, the first thing he said when I said, 
I'm interviewing Chris Paul. He said, um, he's like, oh man, he's like, you know, the thing that always sticks out about Chris Paul is, is he is uh, driven to his drive for excellence, um, that he demands excellence of himself, of his teams, et cetera. Um, and you really get to kind of see where that comes from in this book. I think that's so interesting to give your fans or people who are unfamiliar with you that insight into how you became who you are. Um, but when you were writing it, who did you feel like you were writing this for? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, man, uh, to a certain extent, maybe people who are unfamiliar with me or or familiar with me so that they can sort of know how um, I'm wired. But, you know, it's different sections of the book that were almost like for different people, if that makes sense. Now, the book is never, but I mean, like, at some points when I was writing, someone might have been on my mind, you know what I mean, for this paragraph or for that paragraph. That's crazy. Nobody's asked me that question, but now that I'm thinking about it, it was it was really important when I was talking about the funeral, right, that I made sure that I detailed every sort of bit of emotion that I was feeling because some parts of it, I was sort of talking to my mom, you know what I mean, because... I have no idea how she's going to feel when she reads this book, but mm-hmm. I just want her to know that everything that she was feeling in that moment of losing her mom and losing her dad is that I was paying attention to it mm-hmm. and that I was that that saying hurt for her. However, there's one image burned in my brain from the scene at Papa's funeral. At one point, everybody was just sitting there in the pews. My mom, dad, uncles, aunts, cousins, everyone in the church was sitting down, mourning, listening to the choir sing, my soul has been anchored. My mom just stood up, kind of hunched over and shaky. You could tell everything she had was taken out of her. Her soul was crushed. I wanted to hug her to show that I felt her pain as well. That was usually Papa's job, but not anymore. I was stuck. We all were stuck as she stood alone with the weight of the world on her shoulders in pain, but leaning on her faith enough to push forward. She stretched her arms out, looking up as if she just wanted to hug her mom and dad one last time. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I think that does come across. If, you, if you've questioned whether or not that comes across, it, it definitely comes across that you are not just allowing us to see you, but you have this incredible kind of as it were, I can't call them characters per se, but I'll, I'll have to in this context, this, in, this incredible supporting cast, right? You know, whether it's, you know, talking about your brother, your older brother, uh, Charles Jr., who is CP2, I know you're, you're CP3, um, talking yeah. about your parents and, and what they did to enable you to do what you do now and, and your appreciation for that. Your wife, your children yeah. are, are a huge part of this book. And I, I it's it's... It's, it's a wonderful moment of levity to see how you are now fostering them. I think that it's a, even your aunt, you know, being able to give us a lens into what that looks like. Because I think that, you know, we all, those are the moments of empathy that strike so strongly. And that's a hard thing, I think, to capture in terms of craft. Hey, Chris, how you feeling? I'm Rhonda asked. What time is the game later? We play at Parkland at seven. We'll see. I answered. They didn't know I was struggling with whether or not to play. But once I saw my family, 
I knew I had to play. I kept trading hugs and fist bumps with aunts and uncles. They gave me the regular, boy, you're getting big, or Robin, what are you feeding these kids type of commentary that you get when you find yourself in front of family you haven't seen in a minute. I'm glad you're playing, Aunt Rhonda said. He would have wanted you to. Okay, Auntie, I responded. Papa loves seeing you play, Aunt Rhonda said, with tears streaming down her face. Why don't you do something special for your granddad? I, I also, you know, and please correct me if I'm mistaken, but I, I believe I got from the book that while you were writing this, um, your family was also kind of re-experiencing this whole uh, litigation over your grandfather's murder all over again. First tonight, arguments are being heard in the murder case of NBA star Chris Paul's grandfather. Four men, part of the group known as the Winston-Salem Five, are seeking exoneration. For you, um, as you're writing this, and I assume you were already in process, did that change your narrative? Did it did it make you feel like you were pulled in in a few different directions with this? Like, how did that how did that find its yeah. way into the book, and how did how did you kind of process that? It didn't necessarily change my narrative, but um, I tell you the way life happens is crazy because. You know, I'm in season a lot of times. I'm playing, I'm traveling, I'm here and there, and I'm trying to be as present as possible. Um, but the way I even found out that that was happening was a text in uh, my family group chat, you know, that, you know, they're opening up the case again with this Edison project. And so now, um, you know, life is life, but I know that when this hits ESPN, I'm going to be the one getting questions about it, you know. And I think in the process of it, the first people that come to my mind is my mom and my aunt. So I didn't know what that process was going to look like, what was going to happen. But um, I'm extremely protective of my family because now I'm I'm grown. Now I'm 38. You know, I'm not the 17 year old kid that when this trial happened uh, and I was in college, my parents didn't allow me or my brother to go to any of the trial. Mm -hmm. Right. So. They weren't even they weren't even telling us what was happening at the trial, right? I was in college, and so um, now sort of the roles were were reversed. Now I'm extremely protective of them and their peace, and just wanted to try to be there for them. And you know what's so interesting also is obviously this is also juxtaposed against a very real racial reckoning one of many that America has gone through. And and we see you wrestling also with your own feelings about um, the criminalization of black men, um, mass incarceration, um, so many of these like really loaded and unresolved topics, you know, that for the foreseeable future will not be resolved, right. um, which is the tragedy of being black in America is, is knowing that, right? And um, in the midst of this, having to also watch this play out in your own life, like how how did how was that? How did that feel? It's it's always uh, really interesting because you're watching what's happening with George Floyd. You're watching all the things that's going on, and how I hate the idea of mass incarceration, and you know, and I believe that when I say it. And then on the other hand 
I'm sitting here with my grandfather murdered by five teenagers, right? So people are like, how are you saying this, but saying that? And it's just a, it's just an odd, a odd feeling, right? It's an odd situation. And then I, I've said this a number of times before, I hate the thought of them sitting in jail for the rest of their lives. You know, when people show their remorse or whatnot and, you know, do their time, whatever it may be, then the whole world out there. It's it's hard for me to think about somebody being uh, in jail from 15 to 55. Right, like, right, right. Because yeah, that so really a, is, that is one of the more striking aspects, right? That they were around the same age. They weren't much younger than you at the time. Um, so to have this happen is, is, is one, it's, 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 um, I think it's reflective of, again, a greater American tragedy. And I'm so sorry that it touched your family in that way. Um, you know, to lighten things up just a bit, I, I am curious to know, you know, you again, have had this tremendous career. You're still actively playing. You're still, you know, doing the thing, making the moves. You're yes. You've moved more, more from the protege to the, the mentor. But, right. um, you know, so many people wait to write their memoirs till after they're out of the game. Why? Why did you feel like now was the time? And I felt like right now was the time because, um, I mean, it was even hard recalling some things right and now. Okay. You know, you wait too long. <laughs> you might not be, you might not be the sharp with, with certain things. And mm-hmm. um, I think had I, re- had I written it any earlier, then I wouldn't have the perspective that I have. And I think right now I was just in such a place of gratitude mm. and um, reflected, reflecting things about my family and my kids. I think that was a, a big thing for me is that had I wrote it when I was younger, as much as I appreciate my grandfather, there's a whole different like relationship even going on now like with my kids and with my parents and with my wife's parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, my son uh, actually came to, me and my wife, he's, he left a few days ago to go to North Carolina. Okay. He went to North Carolina. He's actually at my parents' house without my daughter, like by herself. And he's going to Carolina basketball camp on Saturday. Okay. So to see his relationship with my dad, you know, I can't help but think about me and my grandfather. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a wonderful first full circle moment. And, you know, even that aspect of it, I love, I love that to me, that feels like a very entrenched black tradition, that sending of the children to the grandparents. Uh, and- yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, what's funny is my kids haven't really had that. They mm-hmm. did it a few times, but because we're in LA, my parents in North Carolina, and my parents are always here. Like our life is so different from my childhood, you know, because I used to have to go to South Carolina with my great grandmother who had 32 blankets on her bed. You know what I mean? <laughs> and she no probably quilted half of them. Yep. <laughs> and that, you know, the, the roads weren't paved. Yeah. It was rock roads. So it was just different. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and again, what you've managed to achieve, I mean, you know, I I got the sense also that so much of this is. I mean, I found myself sometimes saying out loud as I was reading this book, I'm like, he's there, he can see you, <laughs> you know, he can see what you've done. Because um, I felt that there was also this sense of, man, I wish he was there to see that. I mean, he would have been what, you know, had he lived, possibly made it to 81 or 82, 
to to see all that you've achieved and who knows if he ever would have given up the service station he sounds like he was <laughs> like he was that dude <laughs> but and hits you it's crazy it's crazy you said that because i never even thought about what his age would be now but you're exactly right and but what it really hit me was uh my dad my dad will be uh 63 in october okay right yeah and his sixth first birthday was pretty emotional um for me for sure because that's when it hits you and lets you know like man like this was the age of papa you know and my dad still be in the backyard shooting basketball playing with my son and uh, that's that that part of gratitude that you feel because once again it's my mom that i think about she lost her she lost her mom you know like i said when i was seven and then 10 years later at 17 she lost her dad and i I couldn't imagine being without either one of them, and I'm 38. Listen, I'm 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 older than that, and I feel the same way. Um, you know, one of the, one of my favorite passages in this book, and I have to read it aloud for uh, our viewers because I think I think they need to to know why this book is so special. This is this is one of my favorite quotes, actually, kind of random. But you say, sometimes I get mad when elders look down on young people as if they never made mistakes and always had everything figured out. More so, though, I get mad when the kids won't listen to those who have experience who came before them. And we see this like clash of the generation so often, you know, um, and you what you're trying to impart here is that, you know, your papa, he didn't make those distinctions. He just did what he thought was right. Um, and I, I think it's such a powerful lesson for us now, especially in this age when everybody's able to hide behind their screens and say what they want to say and, yeah. you know, be reckless with each other. Um, what are your hopes for people who read this? Oh, I think for the the quote that you just read from the book, I think I'm hoping that people appreciate both sides of it. Mm. Right. Appreciate both sides of it. Uh, there's something to be learned on both sides. Right. It's crazy because I deal in analogies. That's just the way that I operate. And I and I think about how I went to, for my son's birthday, I took him and 10 of his friends to Six Flags, right, to ride rides. And what you appreciate a lot of times about kids is that kids are fearless, right? Fearless. And I think about when I was, I used to go ride every ride, every ride. But then when you start to be an adult, you're like, man, I can't do that. I can't. What? There's 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 lessons to be learned from kids where it's just like, you know, live in the moment, enjoy it. But at the same time, the kids can also learn that wisdom from adults on different things, whatever it may be. It may be, you know, when you're driving, you know, just be conscious of your surroundings or when you're going out, be mindful of what you're doing and who's paying attention. So um, it's, it's, like I said, just having an appreciation for for both sides of it. Because as, as a kid, you like, man, these old people ain't talking about nothing. But I love nothing more to, to sit down and gain that wisdom from uh, your elders. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that that mix of impulsiveness and, and wisdom is the best that we can ask for. The impulsiveness keeps us young, I think. Um, the yep. wisdom keeps us safe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. um, another thing that struck me, um, you know, in this book uh, is is that you talked about... Um, how how you've really developed an affinity for becoming a storyteller. And that's really what this podcast is all about, the storytellers in our midst. No matter what 
what their broader profession is. Not everybody's a full-time writer. Some of them are, you know, NBA superstars. <laughs> but uh, when you when you think about the stories that you want to tell um, from from sixty one on, um, what what comes to mind? What other stories are you wanting to tell us? You know, I'm, I've thought about that. I mean, I have a production company where we do different things. And um, I think what made this so interesting for me and not easy, but why I knew that it was important to make it sound like me is that I'm a consumer, right? I'm a, I'm a consumer first and foremost, right? So I see things on social. I see things and I know how when things are organic, people can connect with it a lot more. And so with storytelling, um, I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm all over the place, like, right? When I'm watching shows or when I'm reading something, I just because I like when it's authentic. And you know when it sounds like someone and they're, they're like telling you a story because me, I'm, I can read, you know, I can read books and stuff like that, but at times... I can read a few pages and I won't know what I read. So sometimes I go to the audio book or whatnot. And that's why in reading the audio book too, I wanted to make sure it sounded like a conversation because I grew up at cookouts. I grew up on the, at my granddad's service station. And so in reading a book, I want to make sure it sounds like it's me and you having a conversation. And, you know, I asked this question of all of our guests, but, um, what what do you read? What do you read? What do you consume? You know, what are you watching on TV? What do you read? You know, we're in an era where and writers are being undervalued. So I'm, I'm anxious to know, what does Chris Paul read? Right. <laughs> it, it, it varies, to tell you the truth. Like, okay. like a lot of times, I'm always looking at different things. So I got into history, <laughs> um, like, not until later in life. Because <laughs> I was all about math and science and all that stuff and history like I sort of dreaded it when it was uh, uh when I was a kid so like uh white fragility and stuff like that right like these, these books um people give you and I'm always interested in learning more right it's the shows that I watch it could, it could vary I'm I'm really big into health right health and wellness so trying to you know the longevity aspect of life Right. Obviously in playing, but me even going plant based, like reading up things uh, on Dr. Sebi and all these different things, trying to figure out how the body works, uh, because this is a whole nother podcast. <laughs> probably one day. I love life and I love people around me and I'm from the South and I feel like there's a whole education piece that we're not getting when it comes to health and wellness, you know, and, you know, when you go to these different family functions and everything is fried and sweet shook. I mean, uh, sweet tea, all this stuff is, is, is food that is comfort food. Like this is what we grew up with and always had around us. So I'm just big into that education aspect and trying to learn as much as I can. I'm, I'm sure the Chris Paul diet plan would sell really, really well. <laughs> you know, the, well <laughs> the wellness guide. It's not necessarily about like the diet or whatnot. It's like I stop that we got to be educated on. I, you know what? I stand corrected, and you are correct. Diets don't work. Lifestyles do. In the meantime, I'm going to look forward to to hearing who you partner with next and what stories you you bring to us. Because you know, 61 again, 61 life lessons from Papa 
on and off the court is a really moving, moving read. And it really resonated with me deeply. I've already pre-ordered several copies for several members of my family because I think that they're going to be moved by it as well. And I hope that our viewers will do the same. And, you know, listen, it's, it's very rare for us to have on someone who can count, you know, being rookie of the year, you know, all-star MVP, two-time Olympian, and now author. Chris, thank you so much for joining us, for, for gracing us with your presence here at the GRIO. We will be, you know, tuning in to see you next season, and uh, hopefully people will be reading 61. It's a beautiful, beautiful read, and I, I know that your grandfather would be proud, and I'm sure your family will be too. Thank you, and big shout-out to the GRIO. Thank you. Well, that was a really special conversation for me, and I hope it was for you as well. And 61 is an incredibly special book. But as we always do, we have come to the part of Writing Black where I like to recommend a little reading, and I like to call this segment My Favorites. And if you love that conversation, I'm sure you'll love 61, but you will also love The Education of Kendrick Perkins. That's right. You know him from ESPN, or maybe you know him from his days on the NBA court. But this is another incredible memoir from an NBA star who is full of ideas. And, you know, there are some parallels to Chris's story in terms of, you know, being a Southern black man who makes it to the top of the NBA. But there are also some really um, interesting analyses of history and politics and what it means to be a black man in America. And I think it's, you know, I would be remiss if I did not mention this book in the same breath with 61. So whether or not you follow the NBA, I think you'll enjoy both these books, and I highly recommend. But I also can't overlook the importance of Black fatherhood because it shines so clearly through 61, and it also shines clearly in this book. Above Ground, Poems by Clint Smith, who is an award-winning poet and also best-selling author of How the Word is Passed, which examines how uh, racism has been commemorated across America um, this is another volume of poems that I promise you, even if you're not into poetry, you will love it. It's so intimate, so gorgeous, um, really brings us um, a personal lens on black fatherhood. And I don't think we can ever shout out black fathers enough. So Above Ground is another great one. I can't recommend it more, but I, I do hope you'll come back for more next time on Writing Black. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Writing Black. As always, you can find us on the Grio app or wherever you find your podcasts. 